Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Well, General Deptula, always great to have you on the Aerospace Advantage. And of course, I can't believe we're going into year number four of this podcast and appreciate your support through the years. And now, as we have enjoyed for the last few holiday seasons, just looking back, telling some some good stories. And from what I understand, you've got one that was pretty, pretty amazing with, I guess, a, a massive aircraft emergency. Well, thanks for reminding me. I, it, this does go back quite a way. As a matter of fact, it goes back to when I'm in RTU, now called FTU. But bottom line is I'm transitioning into the F-15. And I'm at uh, Luke Air Force Base. I'm upgrading the squadron I'm in as a world-famous and highly respected uh, triple nickel 555 Flying Fighter Training Squadron. Uh, commanded at the time by a legend, then Lieutenant Colonel Moody Souter. And T.C. Skanky was the ops officer. So I think some of the folks that might be listening to this might know those individuals. And this particular day, which was the 29th of June, 1977, not that it didn't create a significant emotional event for me, but to remember that date all these years later, it did. It was my second solo flight in the F-15, and that particular summer, there hadn't been a day in three months where the high wasn't well above 100 degrees. Now, remember, these are the very, very early F-15s. They were still painted Keith Ferris air superiority blue and very, very early off the production line. So, I forgot what the particular mission was, but it was a two-ship, so it was probably a BFM, Basic Fighter Maneuvers mission. And my flight lead's call sign was last name Butler, so his go-by was Rhett. So Rhett Butler was my IP on that particular flight. And we line up on the runway, runway 21 at Luke, and it was the Flatiron Gladden 5 departure. Once again, it's kind of interesting what you remember over 40 years ago. And so, you know, we run up the engines and we uh, do individual takeoffs because I can't remember why we're doing individual takeoffs. Maybe it was a formation takeoff. It doesn't matter. I can't remember. But we take off and it was, no, it was a formation takeoff. (laughs) Sorry. So this particular departure procedure was you take off and then there's an intermediate level off at 3,000 feet. So you have to pull the throttles back kind of to keep the airspeed down. And then it was a right-hand turn uh, to, I don't know, it's 280, it doesn't matter, or 330, something like that. And then you put the throttles up to mill to climb up to 15,000 feet. All right. So a nominal takeoff, formation takeoff, get up, level off, 3,000 feet. We make the right-hand turn. And then when I push the throttles to mill power, 
All of a sudden, I hear this gigantic explosion. The airplane starts shaking. I immediately get a fire warning light on the left engine. And he, I went through the emergency fire shutdown procedure faster than one could think. Throttles idle, fire warning light push, throttle off, fire extinguisher discharge, and then test the circuit. Okay. And I remember doing that in about that, that quickly. About the same time, my flight lead saying, hey, two, you're on fire. Oh, thank you. I, I, I know that. But that's okay. I mean, you know, what are you supposed to do? So he kind of moves out a little bit away from me because I'm sure he either heard it or saw it or, or felt it if we were flying formation, which I think we were. No, because he would have kicked me out to a loose route by that time. So I can remember after I did that procedure thinking, you know, the firelight goes out when you do this in the simulator, and it's still on. And so I retraced my procedure to make sure I'd done everything, and I had. And I look over the RPM gauge, and it's at zero. So I know it's shut down, but the firelight's still on. So Rhett goes, hey, you're trailing a lot of smoke. You still have residual fire coming out at the back of the engine. So, okay, fine. So bottom line is I start dumping fuel, and there's a you know, a rectangular procedure to fly, to come back around, to land. And, and so I'm dumping gas. <clears throat> I'm on a downwind. I turn on a extended final, and I'm still dumping gas. And, and it, it, those of you who have flown at Luke, you, you, the approach is right over Sun City. And someone reminded me, hey, you might want to stop dumping gas. So I said, well, hey, thanks for that. So now I'm on about a mile and a half, two-mile final. I got the gear down. And I still have the solid firelight on the left. And now an overheat light comes on the right. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. And I look over at the White Tank Mountains because that was a designated bailout area. But, I mean, it's really too far. And second, I'm thinking, well, this thing seems to be flying okay. And I remember a procedure that Lars Granith, who was my IP, my normal IP at the time, I guess it was an old F4 procedure. And what you did is you select the opposite bleed air source. And we had a bleed air switch in the airplane. So I selected the opposite bleed air source. I'm, I'm looking at the runway because now I'm like at a, at a mile out. And I'm going, screw it. I'm landing this thing. And the light kind of flickered, you know, and I went, again, screw it. I'm landing this thing. And make a long story short or a little bit longer, I land. I'm rolling out and get down to the end of the runway. Of course, the fire trucks are chasing me. And I stop the jet. And I'm so proud of myself because during emergency ground egress procedures, this is not the, this is the old IC7 ejection seat. No, most people would know what the hell is an IC7, but it's before Aces Two. I guess we're up to Aces Five now, and show you how old this is. But this particular seat, the safing device, was behind the the helmet area. It was called a head knocker, and most people, 80% of the time, forgot to de-arm the seat. But I remembered <laughs> to de-arm the seat, and I'm disconnecting myself, and I'm trying to get out of the airplane. Now, the F-15 has a little foot flap that you can stick your foot into, hit a button, and a ladder on the side of the airplane comes down. So I'm right about the time where I'm sticking my foot in there to let the, let the ladder down. And the truck, the fire truck, is filled with foam, Okay. Well, it misses the engine and it shoots over the airplane, covers me and the cockpit and the side with foam. Now, 
those of you who know foam is designed not just because it's bubbles, but it's designed to suck the oxygen out of the atmosphere. So I can barely breathe. I can't see anything because my eyes are filled with foam. But the emergency ground egress is to, you know, if there's no ladder or whatever, is to hang on the side of the cockpit canopy and then gracefully just, you know, release yourself and drop. Now, it's about 12 feet, so it's not, you know, it's not a an easy drop. But when I release my weight, you know, that foam is slicker than owl shit. So I don't have my, I can't grip. So I'm sliding off the, the airplane and I reach back with my left arm to break my fall. And I did break my fall, but I also broke my wrist in the fall. So meanwhile, the wing commander, there he comes up and goes, what happened? What happened? What happened? And I'm thinking to myself, Hey, dude, can I go get my wrist fixed first? You know, kind of hurts. Okay, so I'll accelerate the story. What happens is I go to the hospital, they fix me up. And uh, actually, let me put a hold on that for a second and tell you what happened with the airplane. What happened on the airplane is the EEC, E-E-C, the electronic engine control, failed when I went to military power. So what the electronic engine control did was control the RPM so that the engine won't disintegrate, except... It didn't work, and so the engine just continued to spin up until it actually disintegrated and was throwing turbine blades out through the back end of the airplane. And this leads to why there was the overheat on the right engine, because what they figured out was, okay, the left engine, there's residual oil and fuel burning in the engine bay, but when that engine threw all those turbine blades and compressor blades, it created a hole in the bulkhead between the left and right engine <clears throat> that was just about an inch or so above the fire detection circuitry. So the right engine really wasn't overheating. It's just when I slowed down on my landing approach, all that fire and, and, and heat from the left engine set off the, the circuit on the right-hand side. And evidently, the bearings on the left engine had seized so quickly that it actually bent the empennage of the back end of the F-15. It took them nine hours to get the engine out, and they could do it normally in 30 minutes. Uh, so the way they fix the airplanes, they actually cut off the entire empennage, put on a new one. Uh, and uh, so I understand that's one of the airplanes that they sold to Israel later <laughs> on. But what happened to me is, you know, I get my hand in a cast, and as a result of this, I actually was written up in Harvard Medical Journal because what broke was my navicular bone. Now, the navicular bone is the only bone in your body that a, a blood vein runs through. And it had healed up in like three weeks. So that and 450 will get you a cup of Starbucks. But it's one of the first times, you know, someone noticed that that had healed up. All right, what does that happen to me? What happens to me is I was in the triple nickel. And when I heal up and I'm off of Denif, I can go back to fly. And they went, well, you know, you're a month behind these guys. But in the 461st, we got a class of seven dudes, and they're about the same place you were. So we're going to move you from the triple nickel to the 461st. Now, the 461st IPs were already clever enough to name the seven students. And they named the seven students after the seven dwarfs. I'm number eight. 
So guess who I get to be? Snow White. Snow White. So that was my that was my original call sign. And you can imagine. But this event, you know, then really foretold my later future because everyone in the triple nickel went to Langley and then off to Bitburg and that side of the world. And the eight of us in this particular class all went to Holloman. And then after Holloman, we all, all of us went over to Kadena to be initial cadre at Holloman, initial cadre at Kadena. And the other cool thing about this particular class, there were eight of us, seven out of the eight of us all went to F-15 fighter weapon school. And the only guy that didn't, didn't go because he ended up leaving early to go be an aggressor. So Frank Strasberger. So that's my story. It's a little bit long and convoluted, but it's amazing what things that happen early in your career affect the rest of it. I think Disney might want to option that story. <laughs> well, yeah, it's always great hearing guys talk about engine fires with multiple engines. So we've got, I know, another multi-engine uh, guy with us today. And Gonzo, I'm sure that you have an amazing story to share with us for this holiday episode. Yeah, it's better to have eight engines than two sometimes. But this this is a story... It goes back when I was a senior instructor evaluator out of Castle Air Force Base, California. And it's a kind of story that I haven't told many people before because it's a story where we almost didn't survive. So this was my evaluator crew and I picked up by a student line consisting of two co-pilots who'd never flown B-52, a navigator, electronic warfare officer, and a gunner. They're all babies, they're all brand new, never flown in the B-52. So picture this, middle of the summer, going out to the aircraft for the first sortie after mission planning the day before. Everyone's really excited. We're going to get to fly finally after ground school and everything. And, of course, you get to the jet, the jet's broken. So what's the e-tech? Oh, we'll have it fixed in half an hour. Hot day. Everyone get under the wing of the airplane, pump water, drink a lot. No one get dehydrated. Half hour goes by. How much longer? Maybe an hour. Okay. It ends up being a three-hour delay. They finally said, jet's fixed. You're good to go. I go around and talk to the instructors, the rest of my crew, and the students and say, if any one of you feel like you can't fly because you're tired, you're dehydrated, whatever, we've been out here a while. I know we've been drinking water, but I'll scrub this mission on a heartbeat. No, let's go. We're good. We're good. We're good. And it was, I think, eight and a half, nine hours, sortie. So I said, okay, I'm good to go too. And I called in and says, we're good to go. And off we went up to the jet, pre-flight, great, in the jet, start engines, taxi out, review takeoff procedure. And I had one of the co-pilots in the right-hand seat, and I was going to demo the very first takeoff, obviously, to this new pilot. One last check with my instructors. He said, no, we're still good. Everything fine. Plane's working great. Good. So I reviewed the takeoff. And in B-52, we actually do timing, timing procedure on takeoff to ensure that the jet is accelerating acceptably. So one thing the pilot not flying the aircraft does on takeoff is at 60 knots, he says 70 knots on the uh, inner foam. And then at 70 knots, he says, now, and then you hear the navigator say, timing. And when the timing expires coming up, 
9.6 seconds, whatever it is, you check airspeed, and if you're at a set, it's correct airspeed, you know the jet's working fine, and you're good to go. So I, I'm thinking through all the things that the co-pilot's going to do first flight. He's going to miss the 60-knot call. I know it, so I'm ready to do it. I'll, I'll set to do it. So clearance takeoff, throttle's coming up. He follows my throttle's up, all good. And we start rolling down the uh, runway, coming up 60 knots. Didn't hear anything. I call 70 knots now. And then timing, we hit our timing. I said, committed. And we're committed, which means, frankly, at that speed, we don't have any more room. Or we do not have enough room remaining on the runway to stop successfully. We'll go out the end of the runway if we abort. So we truly are committed to flying at that point. And then coming up on rotate speed, now gently pull back on the column, nothing. Okay, so give it another five knots, column back, nothing. We're running out of runway. So I pull the column all the way back, nothing. We're just a speeding mass of metal and fuel going down the runway. I immediately think, oh my God, we have elevator failure. I knew if I tried to abort then, we were just going to be a flaming mass off the end of the runway. So that's not going to work. And I thought my only chance is to get this airplane in the air, get a positive upward vector, tell everyone to bail out, and I'm going to save some lives. So the only way I could do that is run the stabilized trim and try to get the nose of the aircraft off the runway. So I hit the stab trim, and it starts running and running and running, I go, oh my God, I know what happened. The aircraft lifts off the runway, normal takeoff. All I could see out the end of the runway when we <laughs> finally get off the ground was uh, the overrun. And normal climb out, gear flaps, level off, everything good. And put on autopilot, I turn around, I look behind me at my instructor, uh, EW, instructor gunner, and all I can see are these four huge eyes looking at me. They knew something really, really wrong had happened. So I go to a private interphone with my instructor crew and says, okay, guys, I know what happened. Just listen to me, talk to the co-pilot for a minute. You guys okay? Yeah, we're okay, pilot. So I get back on the interphone and says, hey, co-pilot, yes, sir. Have a little problem with your microphone button there for the 70 knot call? Yes, sir, I was trying to call you, but it wasn't working. I said, yeah, well, maybe that's because you used your thumb instead of your finger, and what you were pushing was a stab trim, and you ran it full nose down on us. We mm. never would have gotten off that runway if I just hadn't thought in the moment instinctually to try the stab trim to pop us off the runway. Lesson learned was you've got to check the crew, make sure they're okay, anticipate you know, every possible problem, especially on a sortie one, especially in delay when you've been out in the hot weather and stuff. But you got to think of yourself, too. Another thing I learned from that was every takeoff I ever did in a B-52 after that, one of my legs was square up against the side of the stab trim wheel. So if it started running, I would feel it on takeoff. So a little, little awkward, but I, I figured that was never going to happen to me again. Strangely enough, stab trim runaway is uh, something we do practice in the simulator. And in 2008, that actually did kill a crew off the coast of Guam. When they were descending from 10,000 feet down to 1,000 feet, they had uh, a runaway nose down trim. They, they couldn't correct in time. 
they plunked in the water. God bless his soul. So that was my, uh, it almost happened, but didn't story. That's an amazing story. Yep. I think the other piece to that too, is your, your training and you knew, you knew something was wrong, right? And yep. your, your instinct took over. So that's, that's awesome. You fly the jet first, no matter yep. what you do what you can. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Bingo. Still exactly holds true. Right. Yeah. But I'll never forget those huge eyes looking at me. What happened? Pilot? You, wow. you can tell. The bad thing is in a B-52, you need some altitude to be able to bail out successfully, at least an upward vector. And the guys downstairs go down when they bail. So uh, you got to get that upward vector to, to try to save their lives. Well, Charles, I know in the pre-brief, we discussed some on-orbit stories, but since your on-orbit emergencies and stories are all classified, I don't think we'll be able to chat about those today, but you did have some other interesting Air Force history you want to share with us, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, first of all, thanks for including the space guy and the what used to be the uh, flying stories. And certainly what I'm going to relay today isn't as, as harrowing at all. In fact, it's more of a holiday heartwarming type story. So December 7th, we, you know, we all remember what happened on December 7th, but uh, for me and my family, it also signifies a day when my grandfather was born back in 1904. Um, he, he's no longer with us, of course, but that was his birthday. And, and I just happened to be in the Pentagon visiting Colonel Barry Croker, who is the SIG chief for the Space Force. Anyway, it was a great discussion with him. And, and as we're walking out, we're walking past the, uh, executive staircase and down the executive staircase. And for those that, that don't know, that haven't been to the Pentagon, it's not only a large office building, it's also a, an incredible art museum. There's aviation art and just art from all of the services across all of the halls. And recently there was commissioned a, a new painting commemorating the 75th anniversary of, of the Air Force and trying to chronicle the, the story of, of the Air Force and the Space Force together. And this is a great painting done by an IMA Lieutenant Colonel Warren Neary, uh, capturing the, the history of both of those services. All right, so what does this have to do with my grandfather and the birthday? Well, my, my grandfather, his name is Clarence Ducky Nash. Call sign Ducky because he was the voice of Donald Duck from 1934 until he passed away in 1985. And so what does that have to do with Air and Space Force history? Well, in the lower left corner of this painting that just came out, is a picture of Donald Duck. And if you look at the, the captions depicting all of the explanation for all of the imagery in this painting, it's, it talks about how Donald Duck was one of the most popular cartoon characters in the 40s and 50s and was on over 300 unit patches uh, for the Air Force. And so it was really, really cool for me to, to see that depicted there as part of the Air and Space Force's history. Of course, as a, as a guardian, I spent 28 years in the Air Force and two years in the Space Force, so I had an attachment to that painting anyway. But then to see this, you know, reflecting Donald Duck on his birthday was really one of those great moments, uh, you know, of serendipity for me. And just to tie it back to the holidays, his last project that he recorded the voice of Donald Duck for was Mickey's Christmas Carol. Man, that that gave me chills. That was that's pretty incredible. That that family tie and. Really, really glad you shared that. I mean, because because you said that you had something for us, but that is really special, man. Yeah, and it kind of ties back to General Deptula's Disney story as well. So I'm going to start calling him Snow White. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love it. That is that is so awesome. 
Well, and you know, the, the other part, so many of those characters were on Air Force patches throughout the years as well, which is, you know, back to the World War II heritage and December 7th, as you mentioned. So yeah, definitely some, some lineage there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Ephes, I wanted to get you in here as well. Last, but certainly not least, I know that, man, we, we've talked about a lot of flying stuff, but I know you had a particular tale that you wanted to share with the with the audience today. Yeah, thanks, Slick. Thanks for having me back with the uh, podcast team. Appreciate uh, being here. My story's not as cool as Charles's story, so <laughs> thanks for letting me go last there. As an Air Force active duty officer at Mitchell, these comments and thoughts are my own. They're at least 10% true and they 100% do not represent or reflect the United States Air Force or Department of Defense. There I was flying the F-16. This is about 12 years ago. And we brief up a high aspect BFM mission. And Slick, you've, you've flown F-16s for a long time. Have you ever been out of control in an F-16? I wouldn't say out of control. I didn't feel like I was out of control, but yeah, super nose high and, and slow, which is one of those things that yeah. uh, in the Vipers, you know, is, is where they always brief you not to be, right? That's right. Unfortunately, I found myself one day out of control in the jet. So uh, we brief up a high aspect mission. It's me and a very experienced wingman. He's actually had about 2,000 hours in the F-16. He's a weapons school uh, graduate, so very experienced. And we go out to the airspace. And for BFM, for for those that don't know what that means, it's basic fighter maneuvers. That's uh, dogfighting in a, in a fighter aircraft. So the game plan was we get up out in the airspace. We're at medium altitude, and we turn into each other. And so picture, you know, being in your vehicle on a two-lane highway, and there's a vehicle opposite direction of you. And what we call the merge is when you are now directly across the road from that other aircraft facing opposite direction there. So that's that's the merge for the high aspect setup. And we both call fights on, and my opponent, my wingman, who I'm training against, he opts to go straight up into the vertical. And so I opt to follow him. I didn't want to give him all of that altitude for him to then prosecute on me. So I'm, I'm looking behind the aircraft through the back of the canopy at that point, it's a very high G event, so you're you're at nine Gs, pulling the nose through the horizon. You're trying to keep track, keep tally of the training adversary, if you will, and also max perform your aircraft in the process. And as we both merge, post-merge, and both aircraft start to go nose high, I lose him in the sun. And so I immediately ease off on the stick and try to leg his last known position, you know, to make sure that, hey, I'm not going to hit him as I'm telling him that I'm, I'm no joy at this point. And, you know, I call no joy son. And I'm low airspeed. My nose is still almost pure vertical at that point. And I'm trying to find the horizon as I'm looking behind me at that point. So not, not really where you want to be. And I'll never forget it. You know, just like General Deptula said, you know, you can remember certain things I was continuing to track the nose a little bit towards the horizon, and I'm upside down at that point, but the, the jet immediately snap rolls upright. And I had never experienced that before in a fighter aircraft. I didn't command it to do that, right? So that was kind of the first inkling that I'm, I'm now about to depart flight in this aircraft. And it then goes into a deep stall, and it starts to yaw to the left. And it 
I was strapped in, all, you know, both the chest strap, seat strap, all that. And I am now being held into the seat by the straps. It was so violent that my hands were now off the throttle and the stick. And I'm just trying to mentally process what is going on in this moment, you know, because it's, it's one thing to, to practice it in a simulator. It's another to actually have it happen to you in real life. And what felt like an eternity, you know, to process what's going on, I looked down at my my round dials and my vertical velocity indicator, my VVI, it's pegged in a full descent. My altimeter is just screaming, you know, counterclockwise, winding back. And I'm now just a passenger in this event, not really piloting anymore. And all of a sudden I hear on the radio, recover, you know, and, and that was my wingman chiming in and saying, hey, dude, like time to time to act now, right? And I'm at medium altitude, and his words is what recaged my brain to start taking action in that jet. And I I applied these procedures. We call them critical action procedures that we had in the F-16. And I start trying to get the jet out of that deep stall. And part of that is you have to pitch rock the aircraft and kick that nose down as you're descending, you know, towards towards the ground. And my wingman had enough situational awareness in the process that not only did he tell me to recover and, you know, get me to start doing those critical action procedures, he's now chasing me downwards as I'm in this stall and he's calling out my altitudes for me so I, I can have that essay because it's, you know, there's so much stuff happening in that moment. And I was able to get the nose out of the stall, so it pitched down. And then now I'm basically staring at the ground when you can start to see the trees and all that. And I got a safe flyable airspeed. I got air back over the wings and I was able to recover the jet and we brought it back home. That was a significant emotional event, you know, that obviously gave me some couple of gray hairs out of that one. And I think the theme from the, the flying stories from both Gerald Deptula and, and Gonzo is training matters and had I not had, you know, my simulator instructors that you practice that event and they put you in those awkward scenarios, if you remember, and they go, hey, recover, 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 that the training just took over. And my my wingman was there for me to get me back, you know, recage my brain and bring the jet home that day, which, which I'm thankful for. I was going to say one of the things that stands out to me is just, you know, going back to the, to those caps and, you know, you you were already at controls release <laughs> and the jet's still doing so so you actually got to do mpo override and stick uh, 100% yep. and so i had always wondered that pitch override that rocker switch it was a guarded switch if you remember on each side absolutely yeah <laughs> that's why i'm like wow you you did the thing like all the way through oh yeah it was in that moment that i realized why it was guarded and it was so I could reach down and grab that switch with my fingers to then pull. Because I'm, I'm literally hanging in that seat by my straps. And, I mean, you've flown VFM quite a bit. When you're, when you're fighting a, you know, someone behind you, your, your whole upper body is kind of rotated so you can look behind. Your hips have moved a little bit, right? So when you're no longer flying and you're just falling through the sky there, you're out of the seat a little bit, even though you think you're firmly strapped in. That's why that switch is guarded the way it is. 
Absolutely, man. I mean, I, I've heard the story of, yeah, the, so just to visualize, it's like a, a half a circle uh, piece of metal that is, you know, about the, the diameter of your finger. And it's really so you can put your finger in like a hook motion, right? And, That's and right. grab onto that. And then with your thumb, press that spring-loaded switch. And then, you know, it, as the caps go, stick, cycle, and phase. So did you have that oscillation going up and down as you were? Sure were, did. Yeah. So in wow. the simulator, I remember, you know, it, it takes a while to, to pitch out in the simulator. As soon as I engage that pitch override and I, I push the stick forward, the nose just went wham and immediately slammed forward. My wingman, I told you earlier, he was calling out my altitudes that I'm falling towards. And so I, I had the essay at that point to go, I can keep continuing to get myself out of this before I would have to eject, you know, with your uncontrolled bailout altitude. Wow, dude, I'm, I'm like, obviously a good story told well, and you're kind of like reliving it as you're telling it and, and I'm picturing the same situation. Holy smokes, man. It ended up working out. That, that's and, absolutely incredible. Dude, thanks so much for sharing that story. It's, yeah, it's it's eye-opening and uh, gets the, the adrenaline going for sure. So again, really appreciate all that you do for us at Mitchell and sharing and being a guest again here on the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks, Slick. Merry Christmas to you and the family and happy holidays and just want to give a shout out to the men and women in uniform that are overseas right now doing the mission. Thanks. Thanks for what you do and happy holidays. Hey, well, thanks Slick and to uh, everybody out there listening to us. Thanks for your support over the year and uh, wish you all the best in uh, terms of a great holiday season and all the best for a very fine air and space powered kind of 2024. I'd like to echo what General Deptua said. Everyone have a great holiday season, and thank you so much for support to Mitchell Institute. Happy holidays, all. Merry Christmas to everyone. Have a great air and space power kind of Christmas. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.